0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode number nine of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallet. I'm so happy that you found the podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to subscribe and even give me a review. You could even go back and listen to the first few episodes. I'm really proud of them. I find storytelling interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. The idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. I'm really pleased that Brian Finney is joining me for today's episode. Brian is an accomplished author of eight different books across the genres of biography, nonfiction, and fiction. Brian is also a longtime professor of English at the University of London, UCLA, USC, and most recently at California State University in Long Beach. He is now retired, but he holds the honor of being a professor emeritus there. Brian was born in London. He served as an officer in the Royal Air Force and received a B.A. degree from Reading University and a Ph.D. at the University of London. Brian emigrated to the U.S. in 1987. Brian's most recent two books are works of fiction based on timely events. Money Matters, an unconventional detective story, and Dangerous Conjectures, a gripping story about a couple threatened by both the coronavirus pandemic and the rise of conspiracy theories. I think you'll find Brian as fascinating as I do. So, Brian, welcome to The Narrative. Glad to have you here with me today.
1: Well, I'm glad to be with you. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, I'm really excited about this because the, the the focus of the podcast is on narratives. It's called The Narrative, and the idea of it is around storytelling. My background is in marketing and as a business storyteller, and so I've developed an affinity for that. I'm fascinated by storytelling, um, but... Business storytelling is so different, really, than other forms of narrative storytelling. And it's, it's interesting to me and exciting to me to have somebody on who's, who's got the background that you do as an author and a professor, because I think that this will be, for my listeners, a very different view of what storytelling is than the ones I've presented them before.
1: Well, I, you know, I've always thought of myself, not as a professor of literature while I was teaching but as a professor of narrative, I mean, I, I only basically I much prefer teaching fiction to anything else. And I and I always taught my students that narrative goes way beyond literature. But now, I mean, unless you can turn something into a story that is interesting, people are not going to listen to you. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we shape things in the way we do. But as soon as you start shaping the sort of a sequence of events into a narrative, you are then, if you like, providing it with an interpretation. Uh, the, the different shapes you give it give it different meanings. So it's all, you know, really fascinating and complex, um, but definitely up my street.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things that interested me when when we first started um, talking about having you on, when I really went in and looked at your background, and and I may be completely wrong here, so just feel free to tell me I'm foolish because you won't be the first person. But you've written biography and nonfiction, and now more recently in the last couple of years, fiction. That seems somewhat unusual to me. I think, like through, at least from my train of thought, authors tend to find a path or find a lane and say, I'm a biographer, or I'm a nonfiction author, or I'm a fiction author, author and don't seem to kind of navigate between those different forms. But you've done that, which I, think, I find that, that, that interesting.
1: I mean, I think it's partly a reflection of, of my own career, um, you know, in that, of course, there is some pressure to publish when you're teaching, uh, besides which, I didn't need the pressure because I thoroughly enjoy writing and getting published. Um, for example, the, the, the biography that you allude to is of Christopher Isherwood, who was, a, a, in the terms of the history of English, literature, was a very important figure because, he basically provided one, what should I say, one of two alternative ways in which fiction was being written at that time. Um, His was was a very careful way of of constructing prose. And he always started off by doing a rough draft and then worked and worked and worked away at it. Um, And nobody had paid, when I did this, I did it, but there there wasn't a single book about him available. When I And I thought, well, I want to teach him in my classes. I'd better write a book to go with it. <laughs> um, and that, interestingly, um, for the second time in my life, brought me across the States because Isherwood, halfway through his life, emigrated to Santa Monica in California, right next door to me here. Mm-hmm. I, I live in Venice, and, you know, San, Santa Monica's next up on the coast. Um, and, it, I mean, it. basically speaking, it... Uh, increased my interest in uh, life in America because I had to pay for it. And I paid for it by getting UCLA to give me a couple of uh, summer classes. I met an awful lot of really interesting people because he knew interesting people himself. And one of the very last people I met actually was Laura Huxley, which was, you know, Aldous Huxley's second wife, who lived in the uh, hills above um, Los Angeles looking down on it and who I interviewed for a long afternoon and just as I was leaving she looked at me she had this reputation of being a bit of a what should I say a spiritualist she said you know you're going to come back here well I'm a skeptic I said oh yes yes well I'm sure yes <laughs> and she said no she said you're, you're going to come back here in a, in, in a big way eight or nine years before I immigrated to Los Angeles and have been there ever since. You know, that. I mean, the the biography was fascinating because the the other thing that, of course, it does is it calls on your your powers of research and it calls on your powers of organisation, particularly in pre-computer days. I did the issue with just when computers were beginning to come in. Um, So I used a lot of, you know, card indexes and things for it as well.
0: The whole process of writing a book, doing the research, as you referred to a moment ago, um, organizing my thoughts, creating that whole, the way the narrative would actually work, fascinates me. I never was lucky enough to have a professor like yourself. I never went and I never studied any of this in school. So I look at it and think, even if you're a good writer or you can construct an interesting turn of phrase or the process of actually writing a book is much, much more than that. Correct? Is that, is that a fair statement?
1: uh it is more in terms of of length you know you're committing yourself to you know a long period of time obviously um the 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 essentials are the same i mean the essentials are that you need a bit beginning middle and end you need you you know you need a shape you need to know at least roughly what you're going to do i mean even even if you're the kind of writer that doesn't really plot everything out you've got to have a a rough overall structure Mm -hmm. um I tend to, first of all, start with a, not a detailed structure, but a, but a, a sort of me- medium, shall we say, detailed structure, which I'm then prepared to ignore um, if the dialogue or the action says, no, you can't, you, you thought you could do this, but you can't do it because this character would never behave that way, you know? So, so then you have to sort of re- re- redo it all then.
0: So- Pivoting for a second to your most recent book, Dangerous Conjectures, which I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about. Um, I've got a couple of questions, I think, to relate to what we were just talking about with that. But can you give my listeners some insight into Dangerous Conjectures and what the book is about?
1: Sure. Um, It's set in the Bay Area in Oakland, in actually a friend's house. (laughs) And uh, it's in the first three months of 2020. It actually ends the day that everything shut down the schools and businesses and so on because of the coronavirus spread. Um, And I I chose that deliberately. I mean, I was writing late during that year, later during that year. And I didn't want the thing to be sort of easily dated. So I thought if I can finish when everything changes, then, you know, that solves that particular problem. And at the same time, it doesn't ignore it. I mean, because It features two major characters who are married uh, Adam, who is a professor of um, computer science at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and um, Julia, who is a researcher for the ACLU in San Francisco. Um, And um, for being a scientist, Adam actually shares with me an immense skepticism of the rise of conspiracy theories that occurred at that time. And in particular, he is cannot believe that so many people are being uh, are subscribing to the myths of QAnon. Now, when I was writing this at the beginning of, you know, when I started writing it, uh, and I talked to my friends who, who, you know, when they said, what are you writing? And I said this, and, and they would say QAnon. And I'd say, yes, I'm writing about, you know, the rise of QAnon. They say, "What the hell's is that?" And then, when I would describe it to them, they would say, "Well, you know, that can't, you know, that can't get anywhere seriously."
0: Yeah, that was my that, that was the one of the pivots I wanted to take is when I when I was reading the book, and I I knew, you know, you published it earlier this year, but I knew that you must have written it obviously because of the, the the whole world, you know, it was a twenty 2020 twenty into twenty twenty one story. Um yep. But it's almost. It it almost preimagines so much of what's actually happened in the last year and a half. It was staggering to me. That was all. It almost read to me as though you were writing it in real time, even though you finished it months yeah. before. Then obviously because it's a book, and I that was just it was you know either genius on your part or just or just this whole you you predest or presupposed where this was going to go from the conspiracy perspective and the way disinformation just propagates. And I don't even see it getting better. I think it's almost getting worse to a certain degree.
1: Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you make me happy when you say that it still seems very relevant today, because that was one of the aims of, of doing it that way. Um, and oh, all right, just to continue for a second. Yeah. Adam is a skeptic as I was, That's uh, perhaps the only overlap in the book with me personally. And uh, being a scientist, he therefore sets out to investigate QAnon and, um, and the more he gets into it, the more he realizes not only that it's a powerful force, but that it's—and this is where the fiction starts entering—but it is also in league with the White House. The White House is uh, surreptitiously, you know, um, acting in unison with it to disrupt the primary elections that were going on during those first three months of the year. And meantime, Julia is uh, terrified uh, by the virus. She's never even thought about you know, the possibility of death dying. And now, you know, it seems to be just lurking outside the front door whenever she leaves the house. Um, So uh, this causes her, first of all, to listen all too willingly to a friend of hers who loves these conspiracy theories called Amy, um, which really rattles Adam, who constantly sends her back to the facts. Uh, but it also causes her to make a number of much more uh, serious mistakes. Uh, first of all, to cure her anxiety or quiet her anxiety, she she takes to opioids, and before she knows where she is, she's actually addicted to it. You know, uh, she's addicted. Um, and also, um, it, it it distorts her judgment, and when an old boyfriend turns up um and won't go away she thinks that if she will sleep with him once that'll get rid of him which of course does the reverse and she lands up um you know being stalked instead a whole family is in fact threatened and he's a extremely violent individual uh and that violence is meant to parallel the violence that um, the White House is encouraging in the, in the primaries in order to try and abort any possible, you know, full election. Uh, so although the, the, the novel starts off in a very, very day-to-day uh, parallel to the facts, it slowly departs from the facts, um, particularly on at the political level. I mean, of course, Adam and Julia are totally made up. But uh, what's going on in the background? Because they're constantly, you know, looking at the news on Google News or what have you. Uh, and at first, that, that news is the news. and then slowly the, the numbers get you know increased, et cetera, et cetera. And the novel ends, which I won't give away, uh, on a totally fictional note.
0: <laughs> yeah, so what's interesting is, and even here you describe it now, and I read it a few weeks ago, the when you made the point about that it takes this fictional turn. but when you really listen to you describe it, now, I could actually see all of this happening, right? It is not that far fetched. It was
1: very close. It's amazing
0: how you know, and you probably couldn't have imagined that when you started working on it. But when you think about it now, with a year of in the rearview mirror, you know, I hate to be—I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but holy cow, some of this stuff you could very easily see having actually occurred.
1: I agree with you entirely. I was—I was surprised as you are. You know, it came so close. And I didn't realize how how what should I say how close to reality the fiction was getting um, until later. Yeah. You know, after January the sixth.
0: Yeah. Um, which is really interesting. I, in, you know, again, I think that and going back to your craft and the way you've structured it, you know, that obviously you had to do an awful lot of research to inform the book and to inform the material behind that. But a lot of that was a bit of a moving target in terms of research, I would imagine, because you're fighting through real information and disinformation and trying to correlate that and put it in as context where you don't come through your writing off as though you're espousing a particular position on either thing. And you're not really divining, defining, uh, defining disinformation versus information. You're just laying out a story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, one of the things that um, – that I made happen with Adam um, was almost like a correction to myself because, you know, it's so easy to make fun of QAnon. But, you know, what causes QAnon to have the appeal that it does? it has something to do with people whose lives are a total failure, not necessarily at their own fault even, who see this sort of wonderful opportunity to join the winning side, to be victors, you know, Mm -hmm. to march march to uh, happiness forever after or what have you and um adam has to learn that facts alone are not enough to stop that that in fact you know people's emotions are more powerful than facts
0: yeah i am um, you know i'm like many people i get frustrated by the whole the way we interact on things like these today and people the the, the polarization of people and i'm uh, i'm currently at a home that i have that's in the panhandle of florida where the congressman in the district i live in here is matt gates oh my god i also have a home in georgia that i spend half my time at and the district directly next to the one that i'm in has marjorie taylor green as its congressman woman
1: Did you really think i them.
0: yeah i you know now i i i always tell everybody in fact what's really funny we talk about this all the time my wife grew up in columbus ohio and the part of columbus she grew up in is right next to where jim jordan is a congressman and, and I hang my hat on – I actually grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley, and I hang my hat on the fact that at least I've got Adam Schiff because he's the congressman where I grew up. I mean I try to balance it, but um, it is amazing, you know. and especially being down here in the south. And I'm a Californian originally, and being in the south to just see – I think it's more rampant in the south for whatever reason. I think it's more rural. I think economically there have been a lot of things that have happened down here. There's this whole – you know the the idea that um, that you know foreigners, immigrants, whatever you would call it, are going to replace Americans is more rampant here because it was manufacturing and farming and rural and communities have died. And um, you know you get outside of the big metros like Atlanta itself, and it it happens pretty fast. So I can see the roots of where it comes from, um, and I get to the point where I can't. I, I try to you know I you can't to the one of the points you made a minute ago. You try and argue with people, and I don't know anybody who's a true QAnon believer that I know of, but you can't even argue with facts because it's a post-facts world. Like the people, my facts and their facts are different facts. I believe that mine are more valid than theirs, but they heard them from a source they hold credible. And so to them, they're more valid than mine, and it allows everything to become politicized, which is just crazy to me that things like like a pandemic becomes a politicized thing.
1: Yeah. I, I entirely agree with you. I think the same way, and uh, and I don't see an easy way out of it. You know,
0: now, uh, you know.
1: I think it's it's a matter of evolution, slow evolution, um, and I, who knows whether we've gone sufficiently far down the opposite swing yeah. the pendulum before it turns you
0: know and goes yeah. in the opposite direction yeah i mean just you know i don't want to get too political i guess i already have but you know the idea that that anybody could look at what we all watched on television in january 6th and say that that was just a bunch of tourists touring the Capitol. you you can say it but the fact that there are millions of people who've now layered on and said yes i'm all in on that on that view of what happened on that day just is amazing to me and it's you know you know, I'm a lifelong American. Obviously, you emigrated to the U.S., but I can't imagine that that any of us of a certain generation think that that's even something that could have happened, that could have been talked about in that way.
1: No, I agree. I I, mean, I didn't think until it happened we even thought it was possible.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I mean, it was very really, really shocking.
0: Yeah. Um. So going back to the book. Um, yeah. I'm I'm curious to the whole process. You know, you you mentioned earlier that as part of your professorial duties, you know, part of that is being published as most professors are. And I would imagine in literature, it's even more of a demand to continue to produce and publish. But I think you're, you're semi-retired or retired largely from teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But is it, how difficult is it to write and get published and work through that? What's that process like of actually, so you ideate the book, you sit down, you outline it, you draft out, but how do you get from idea to actually published, printed book or downloadable book or whatever it would be. I think my listeners would be curious or interested in in how that entire process works. And then at the back end of that, what do you then do to, for lack of a better term and hitting back into my sweet spot, market that to let people know that the book is out there and available?
1: Yeah. Well, um, the the, the last book I wrote whilst I was still full-time teaching, uh, I'd already got tenure and I'm a full professor, I didn't have any pressure on me. I decided that I would write outside my discipline. And I wrote a book called Terrorized, how the war on on terror affected American culture and uh, society. Um, And that involved a huge amount of research. But it also was something which, because I was not a political scientist, shall we say, uh, I realized would be very hard to persuade a publisher to take on, so that was the first book I self-published. Now I self-published it, and I didn't do very much other than self-publishing. It was a kind of, what should I say, um, you know, private satisfaction. Uh, it's continued to sort of sell very slowly. <laughs> uh, it's way down on the, on the list on the publishers' list, and it what that made me realise is that okay, you know, you can choose to do self-publishing, but if you want anybody any significant number of readers, you then have, as you say, to market it. So when I wrote my first novel, uh, I selected self-publishing as as an option. Uh, You know, I mean, I I chose to do it. It gave me much more freedom. Of course, it gives you 70 percent royalties as opposed to the ridiculous five or ten or whatever it is that publishers do. Um, But it also enables you to target the audience. Uh, And I uh, found, I was introduced to a young uh, woman publicist who specialized in just precisely what I was doing then. Um, and uh, she did an amazing job uh, of getting me lots of interviews, getting me reviews, um, you know, offering free copies in order to, you know, one book in order to get the other book uh, sold and so on. So um, that's what I, did. I chose, but because that was a good experience and it, and it resulted in reasonable sales. And I'm, by reasonable, I don't mean that I made any money on it. But then, how, how many authors make money? Only the Stephen Kings of this world. Um, so, but, but you know, nevertheless, it was a, it was a success. And so I'm doing the same with this book. And it's too early to say, you know, how how well it will go or not.
0: It's um, I had. Worked with a on a corporate book project. Somebody had approached us about having somebody that I worked with write a book um, about the broader market that we that we participated in. And I, you know, I asked them these same questions. You know, so you know, we can write a book. Then what? And uh, I was surprised, at least when it came to the business book side of things, how much because this consultant we started working with was telling us the process of. You know the, the big goal on a business book, as they explained it to me, was you just want to be able to say you're a New York Times bestseller or an Amazon bestseller. So how's, what's the way to do that? Because that will then drive you. What you really are doing, their, their perspective on the business book was you're actually doing it as more of a personal branding exercise. You're writing the book because you then want to do speaking engagements or other things, and you want to be able to have to be introduced as Jeff Gallett, New York Times bestselling author. Or what you know, or whatever the person's name is, and the way that they were describing the way you can manipulate that through ordering books on Amazon, concerted way at a certain time of day, um, and manipulate those lists because they're very data driven now. I think it used to be based on you know Barnes and Noble and other people's actual sales, which don't really exist anymore in the same way. And I I came out of it. With such a negative view of that part of the process, because I viewed it as it reminded me of back when I was a kid and you used to hear about music artists that became great because of payola, because people were just going around and paying DJs to play their music. And this was almost the digital literary literary version of payola. And I was surprised at the whole way the whole process worked. Is it is it similar in in non-fiction Not really, or fiction, because
1: Amazon has got extremely sophisticated about uh, what, you know preventing or you know countering those kind of manipulations, and also if you think about it, I mean I forget what the actual figure is, but you know I mean literally hundreds of thousands of books are published every day. I mean it's like a flood, and unless you do something, it's going to get completely overwhelmed by the flood and you know sink into the mud at the bottom. So yeah. To speak. Yeah. So you know you you have you have to uh, you 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 cannot manipulate the market easily unless you're prepared to spend you know tens hundreds of thousands and yeah, then you can yeah, probably
0: yeah yeah um, so what are your plans forward are you going to continue you know b- both money matters and dangerous conjectures. Still- they end, but they have a way that you could see them continuing on and becoming a series potentially, or having a follow-on to them. Is that? Do you have that kind of a goal for for either of the of the nonfiction or sorry the fiction books?
1: And um, not so far. Well, i what I've been playing. I mean, you notice each of those books has a sort of major political background going. Mm-hmm. "Money Matters" has the, the 2010 midterm elections and the gov- government government California elections, yeah. and it also has immigration as a major theme, and I think I'm quite often driven by what's going on in the wider scene, and then I conjure up a, a domestic, you know, equivalent for it or response to it. Um, to my mind, at the moment, the single biggest problem facing the world is the disparity in income. Uh, I mean, I think that could cause the breakup of countries and societies, and it, it could be quite disastrous. You know, add in climate change to you know give it impetus and so on. Yeah, you had so, made a I'm, comment
0: to me in a back and forth we did over email preparing for this about the, the, just the sheer volume of homelessness in Venice, where you're at, which yes, I've indeed, experienced indeed. in being there. And, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the entire, you know, uh, the, the boardwalk in Venice was the second uh, largest tourist attraction in Southern California. And it became completely inundated with homeless te- encampments. Uh, so much so that it, you know, the the uh, vendors there weren't making any money, and people were afraid to go there because yeah. it got pretty rough. But at any rate, I decided, okay, I, I thought. Therefore, what I want is to have a confrontation between somebody who's never never had anything in life, whose life has always been a, you know, a failure so to speak, or, and impoverished, and someone who takes. Uh, Huge wealth for granted, who, who's always had it, who lives with it. Um, and I, I, at first, I was thinking of having a homeless woman park her car across his, you know, in his driveway or something. And he, of course, does everything to get rid of her. And then, I don't know, the car goes, gets on fire and he's forced to take her in. I, I just want, I don't care how I do it, really. I, I'm probably not going to do that. But I want the two of them. Um, actually have to interact and gradually get to know each other until um, it it might, it might, it could even end as a romance, I don't know, Uh, but it certainly, it certainly needs to individualize and specify the huge difference in assumptions and way of life and so on. And it's it's a difficult one to do. I mean, I've been concentrating on her because you don't want to make her a dummy or anything. Um, I mean, I, I think she has to have at least one or two years of college, you know, education and so on, or self-taught something.
0: Um, yeah. It's interesting. My, my wife and I were in California a couple of weeks ago for, for my son's wedding. And, um, we went to visit family in Sacramento and we, uh, we ended up in a coffee shop in downtown Sacramento and, um, just we're sitting there and saw a guy walked in carrying a camera and he had a T-shirt on it that said, good trouble. So we live in Georgia. So we we actually said to him, you know, John Lewis is from Georgia. That was his statement of go out and make yeah. good trouble. And so we just said we liked his T-shirt. And so we started talking to him. And he's a retired prosecutor. He worked in the San Francisco DA's office under Kamala Harris oh. at one point when she was DA in San Francisco. And he's retired now. And he is into photography. And he is spending his time documenting the homeless. He's photographing the homeless. And so I followed him on Instagram right there. I'm like, we had a, a less than, we, you and I have been talking far longer than him and I talked that day. But I mm-hmm. followed him then, and I've been following his work. And it's it's really remarkable. I'm actually going to reach out to him and see about having him as a guest on mm-hmm. here at some point, because he mm-hmm. does a different, he does visual narrative. It's a very different kind of narrative, but he's really telling mm-hmm. stories. Um, but it was, it was so interesting. Because he profiles, he'll photograph a person, then profile them. And this was two weeks ago, so I've only seen eight or nine of these profiles. And almost all of them are not institutionally homeless. They're, they're forced to be homeless for reasons, but they're all smart, educated. Yeah. Some of them ended up in prison. Some of them have, you know, their life took a different turn. Some of them came back from the military service and, you know, got flushed out of the system. But um, it's been really interesting to follow and see that, you know, to your point, it's not just people that don't have an education that end up homeless, et cetera. Right.
1: What's his name, by the way?
0: Gale Filter, G-A-L-E-F-I-L-T-E-R, like filter. Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: Um, yeah. So it's been, and he's, he's a very good photographer too. So, you know, hopefully I'll have him on here at some point, but um, I think that is an interesting idea to juxtapose that. I you know that, I, and I think, as you
1: say, you know, I mean, visually, a, visually, you're still telling a narrative. You're just doing it in a different medium and in a different way. Yeah. Which is why, you know, when novels get translated into movies, sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Yeah. When they succeed, it's usually because they made drastic changes to it in order to accommodate it to a different way of telling the story.
0: Yeah. So the the other thing that was interesting on that trip, I don't want to make it so much about me or my trip, but um, I think you might have a perspective on this too. Is I, I worked for a long time in San Francisco, and it's more even though I was born in Los Angeles, I actually lived in the Bay Area much longer. And we went to San Francisco, and I was just stunned. The the San Francisco I haven't been there. Obviously, we haven't traveled at all because of the pandemic. But the San Francisco that I was in two weeks ago was not the San Francisco that I knew before. It it's it, it, to say that there's a lot of homeless is one thing. There always have been a lot of homeless. The streets were just empty. The, the stores were shuttered. The restaurants were shuttered. You could, have, you could have run down the middle of Market Street and not had a car hit you at 2 o'clock in the afternoon yeah. on a Tuesday, um, which is just not contextually what I'm used to. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of that's been driven by COVID. But the question is, does that ever come back? And what happens when things like the rent moratoriums and things fall off and a lot of people who – are going to become homeless potentially, who yeah. are you know fall into that. It's just it's interesting economic times and interesting you know yeah. social times.
1: I, uh, from that point of view, this, this novel, if it ever gets written, would be maybe as prescient as the last one in terms of you know number of people who are going to be experiencing what she has experienced. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, it like sounds like an interesting topic. And I think you could, you know, well, who am I? But I think you could actually, I could see this juxtaposition between these two people who at every level are not that different, but have very different station in life because right. of circumstance right. and that that would just be an interesting right. read.
1: He's a hedge fund manager. I, mean, I think he will be. <laughs> I,
0: I remind, it reminds me of back in the day, the old Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd movie with Don Amici and... Uh, Forget who the other actor was, but it was the trading places where they said, "Is it environment oh. or is it upbringing? Could you bring, you know, like could you teach the homeless veteran off the street to be a hedge fund manager, or he was commodities trader, vice versa?" But that was all done as comedy. I mean, there wasn't any social yeah. commentary to it. Yeah. But um, yeah. as soon as you started talking about it, that's what that's what reminded me of it. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So. Are you still doing any teaching at all? I know that you you're an emeritus professor, but are you still actively actually active in in the classroom anymore?
1: No, I'm not. I, I chose not to. I mean, I could have, but uh, I chose not to. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't retire till I was 80, and um, wow, <laughs> I thought I'd had enough. And I, I, I mean, I'd always thought, well, what what would you do, you know, when you've got all the, all the time free? Because you keep on saying, if only I had the time, I would so and so. And it's interesting because Quite often nowadays, you know, I'll get up. My wife says to me, "Well, what are you? What are you doing today?" And I say, I "Have no idea yet." And literally, it's a sort of existential experience every day. I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm the kind of writer that finds you no know, difficulty in sitting down and writing for two or three hours. Uh, I mean, it's a pleasure. So I don't have to force myself into a routine or anything. And I'll do it whenever I I, I want to. And it's it's wonderful that sense of liberty, that sense of I could do anything next next hour, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: So when you um, in the, you know going back through your bio for my listeners, you 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 went to university and and got a um. Well, I don't know what your degree was in, but I do know that you went to university, and then did you go into the um, the RAF after university or before university?
1: Uh, well, in England, you you have a three-year undergraduate degree yep. then I I, I was the, one of the last generations to qualify for a national service so I decided to capitalize on that and instead did a three-year short service commission uh, in, in the Royal Air Force um, and after that I I was teaching airmen to basically qualify for university as much as or, or for promotion yep. and you know I, I had so many airmen ready to go and then the Suez crisis came and they were all whipped off to Cyprus and I thought I'm not gonna do a job which stays on the sidelines. I'm gonna go straight into the center of things. So I took a graduate apprenticeship in industry with <clears throat> Joseph Lucas, which is the biggest car manu- electrical manufacturing mm-hmm. company. Um, and after that, I, I got a job in um, the equivalent of I- IT&T, um, as it was a quartz crystal factory. I was a production manager, uh, production control manager. and I- <laughs> I was asked to double the production, basically. You know, the sales department was saying, we can sell so many more. So I doubled the production, the chart goes up there. And then they say, oh, sorry. um, Actually, it was just a backlog, you know. Our our weekly says, really our so-and-so. Could you bring the the thing back down again? So I I looked at this graph going up and down. And I thought, do you want to do this for the rest of your life? (laughs) Because the car industry is exactly the same. Boom, slump, boom, slump. Yeah. That moment of time, the University of London had a administrative job in the equivalent of what we call extension here. Okay. Um, so I, I took that up, um, and I'm, I, I'm. They said, look, you know, you can have a factory next year if you want. Can't be a factory manager. I thought I'll be caught by the money. I'll never get out of it again if I do that. So I'm glad I, I made that decision.
0: So that's an interesting pivot. That's where I was going. You know, just your background that to pivot from military service and then working in management to then pivot to a teaching career and a literature career is just, it's an interesting pivot. I know it was a while ago, yeah. but it's just, it's an interesting choice. And I appreciate the fact that, you know, you looked at that and said, cause I can only imagine that, you know, it's going to be like this forever.
1: Yeah. 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 No, I, I as I say, I, I really, and, and the job I got it with the university was to put on courses in all of the arts for the L- London adult public. Um, so, you know, I would be working with the British Film, Film Institute or the Institute of Contemporary Arts or, you know, whatever, the National Gallery. It, I mean, it was really fun um, and, you know, enabled me to do a whole lot of interesting projects, including taking students abroad on artistry tours with an art historian.
0: Yeah, that does sound <laughs> great. Fun. That great. does sound fun. So um, pivoting, because um, we're getting close to, to the time here. Um a couple things that I'm doing with every one of the podcasts for my listeners, I'm trying to expose them to different people and different thinking, and and I think uh, yours might be very different than other ones they've heard here. So I've got three questions for you, and uh, you know, just top of my head questions. The first one is: Is there a recent movie or show you've seen or binge watched, and would you recommend it? Something something that really you thought was great.
1: Uh, the French Village. Uh, it was a series. Okay. It was about uh, resistance during the war in France in this small village and how all the enmities and you know cross currents and so on continue after the war as well. They don't just disappear when right. the war ends. Right. That was fascinating. And it was, I forget, you know, it was like four series or something, four, yeah, four series. It was great. Very well done.
0: Great. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Um, Second one is there other than your own? Is there a recent book you've read or a favorite podcast other than this one that you've listened to? Something you want to recommend to people um, in addition to obviously, and we'll pivot back to your books in a second. But
1: Um, well, there are there are several, but I I think the one I most enjoyed was where the crawdads sing, which is by somebody who'd never written a novel though she'd written um, nonfiction books. She was an environmental scientist and it's about this young girl being brought up in the marsh marsh area of north carolina um, and how her parents abandoned her so she's basically brought up by the natural landscape which is beautifully described wonderfully described and then uh, she's wrongly accused of murder and the, the second half turns into you know her being uh, on trial for for a murder she didn't commit yeah. really great book Michael. Wow,
0: great and then um, on the music front, or is there or anybody that you that you love that you want to recommend any any current songs or artists or or you know back in the day songs or artists people that people that inspire you to listen to them.
1: Well, my 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 favorite singer is Taylor Swift. I can I can never have enough of her, and uh, you know I, I think she's so clever and um, and at the same time moving. I mean, you know, she can really get you emotionally, but she she's got her head, you know. Firmly in control of what she's doing.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I was um, I only had her viewed through the prism of pop star Taylor Swift, and I actually did some work for the company for a company I worked for a few years ago, where we were working with her agency on some things, and I didn't really know her stuff very well. And then during the pandemic, when she released the two albums that she did during the pandemic, my sons, who are you know 28 and 35, said you should listen to this. I was like, oh, you know, it's Taylor Swift. I don't think it's my thing. And they said, just trust us. Download these albums. And I did. And they're brilliant. They're just amazingly brilliant. And the more than I've then, for whatever reason, now decided at a very advanced stage, I was going to go back and look into her a little bit and found out the way that she's taking control of her own career and going back and re-recording all of her music the way she wanted it done, but that, that the image makers wouldn't let her do it then. It's just she's a remarkable person. And, and her music yeah. is great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We agreed on that. Yeah.
0: So cool. Um, so cool. there you go. I would not have, I would not have expected my, my guest who retired at 80 to say that Taylor Swift was his musical muse. So there we go. It's probably a great place to end. Um, um, real quick though, before we end, do you want to tell my, tell my listeners about at least, I think at least money matters and dangerous conjectures for sure. And where they can get it. And, uh, and um, you know, all the details there.
1: Oh, sure. Um they're, they're, they're both available both as an audiobook as a paperback and as an ebook on Amazon uh, I mean that, that's much the easiest way of doing it just put in the title dangerous conjectures on Amazon and you'll you'll get it yep. uh, I also have a very extensive if they're interested in going any further I have a very extensive website which again is easy to remember because it's bh Finney Brian H Finney bH Finney at bhfinneycom so um, uh, they could look me up there and I, I'm also, uh, I also, uh, post on Instagram.
0: Great. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really appreciated the conversation. It was a lot of fun and, uh, hopefully we'll catch up again. And when you're ready, when you're, when you finish the next book, let me know and we'll have you back on.
1: I'll certainly get in touch. And thank right. you for having me. Thanks, Brian.
0: Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review the narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.